Welcome listeners to our fifth episode of our second season that's going to delve into the complex realm of global clinical trials and the access Asian patients actually have had in novel or innovative treatments, quite probably one of the most inequitable of standards in healthcare and one that hasn't been understood as deeply enough as it should be. I'm Rohit Segal, the Chief Strategist here at the Voices Project based out of Singapore. We're a group of like-minded health editors, researchers, and writers who've spent a career in trying to track the evolution of healthcare in parts of the developing world, particularly Asia Pacific. So essentially what you're listening to is a 100% neutral, independent, and nonprofit platform that aims to produce deeper insights, knowledge on public health issues that affect all of us in every walk of life. And what we try and do is rooted in local circumstances, experiences, and of course, the divergences that we all live through. And you've heard me say this before for those listeners that have been following our show, that it's only by empowering voices and the issues that affect us that we seek to accelerate many of the key healthcare priorities facing our region today. Well, today's an extremely exciting episode. It's one that I've been wanting to produce for a while, um, and I'm joined to help us navigate through this by two stalwarts of the oncology and clinical trial world. One who's represented the path that clinical research and trials have had to traverse in Asia and almost globally, and the other who is now trailblazing the future of technology-enabled patient outcomes. Jean-Paul Delépier, founder and CEO of Isoclape, uh, a Singapore-based clinical research organization, has offices in about nine countries, more than 30 professionals worldwide, uh, applies therapeutic experience and expertise that help partners bend the cost and time curve of drug development. And Dr. Hiran Sivaraj, the co-founder and CEO of Onkashot, is part of a really unique startup that helps patients, caregivers, and oncologists identify clinical trials more efficiently and effectively in today's fast changing landscape of cancer care. And their platform generates leads for relevant clinical trials in minutes. We'll learn a bit more about that fascinating side as well. Um, well, that's your professional introduction, uh, but perhaps I can ask for a more informal one. And it'll be lovely to hear in your own words, what brings you to the, the sort of category that we're gonna talk about today. Jean-Paul, maybe I can start with you first. Uh, yeah, hello, uh, good morning, good afternoon, uh, uh, Rohit, and uh, thanks for giving me the possibility to participate to this uh, very important uh, uh, series. Um, I am a medical doctor by training. I did uh, a lot of uh, clinical work. I did also laboratory uh, research before deciding to go into uh, clinical uh, research. The reason is that uh, we need uh, some drugs. Everybody needs some drugs because uh, on one hand, the environment is changing. So for example, anti, there can be uh, antibiotic resistance uh, developing. So you need to develop new antibiotics because uh, there are certain diseases for which there is still no real cure, let us think about uh, dengue. And then last but not least, we have had SARS, we now have had uh, COVID for which a treatment um, needs uh, uh, to be uh, discovered. So mankind has a need for new drugs and these new drugs or new medical devices, and these uh, medical devices and new drugs can only be put on the market if they can go through what is called the whole clinical development of a uh, medical device of, uh, or a drug. So this is really a very important process, not that um, laboratory work is not important, not at all, but at the end of the day, uh, we are humans, we are no, not rats and mice, and uh, uh, what is coming on the market needs to be properly tested in humans. And that's why I decided uh, more than 20 years ago to come to Asia 
and to start in the development, in the growth of clinical research in this very important continent. Thanks for that, Jean-Paul. Puran, um, um, let's hear from you. Hi, Ruben. Thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to you know, share this uh, stage with uh, Dr. Jean-Paul as well. So I would, I would describe myself as um, an oncologist in my clinical practice at some point. But today, a lot of my work is in marrying my passion in oncology with the evolving landscape of technology and data. Um, and essentially, the work that we are doing um, with my startup, OncoShot, is to help to kind of build that bridge between healthcare systems and industry to fundamentally explore how data can be leveraged and to really accelerate and improve on the efficiency and effectiveness by which the work that companies um, in clinical research that you know Jean Paul, Dr. Jean Paul has been talking about that are doing so fundamentally important to accelerate drug development can be actually made better um, and more equitable for patients to be able to access them in a timely manner. And I think a lot of the discussion today is going to be centered around you know, that uh, equity or lack of it in this part of the region. And I think technology here has a wonderful role to be to play um, in, in addressing those gaps. Um, and for me, in my career today, it's about really look exploring that frontier um, of how data and technology can actually help to address some of these legacy issues. That's, that's great. Well, thank you both. Thank you both so much for joining um, this platform. Well, to our listeners who've been uh, keeping track of this particular season, you've noticed that our objective has been to try and lay the foundations for not only a regional, but almost a global understanding of the framework for the role of technology in life sciences. And we've covered a variety of different areas and circumstance. And what we're doing here is to try and develop region-specific consensus that can be leveraged by policymakers, healthcare professionals, actors in the private sector to better facilitate the development and rollout of medtech uh, by taking a more continental rather than isolated localized approach. Now, today's discussion is really going to get into an area that is a critical, critical component of making all this come together. Now, um, perhaps a good place to start uh, for those listeners who aren't as well versed in clinical trials themselves, what's the difference between a clinical trial and clinical research? Uh, perhaps that's a, that we can spend a couple of minutes to maybe just outline that. So what exactly uh, is the value and benefit of a clinical trial? What's the difference uh, between a trial and a research? Uh, Jean-Paul, maybe you could help articulate that in a summarized way for us as we get started. So when we are speaking about uh, clinical trials, uh, it means that a particular device or uh, a particular uh, compound is tested in humans. We make traditionally the differentiation between four phases. You have phase one, phase two, phase three, and phase four. Phase one is the phase where the compound or the device is first tested in humans. So it means it directly uh, comes after the animal uh, experiment. And we need this because again, we are not mice, we are not rats, we don't behave that way and also we don't react that way when uh, we get a compound or when a medical device is applied. Phase one is the first time that uh, the compound is tested in humans. It means that phase one is focused on safety because that's the first concern that the new entity is safe. Mostly this is done in healthy volunteers, except for some diseases where uh, it is unethical to do it in uh, healthy volunteers. Cancer drugs are a good example where uh, the testing cannot be done in healthy volunteers, but in patients. So phase one is focused 
own safety, on finding the, the right dose of uh, a particular medication, and is followed then by phase two. Phase two is um, a phase where not only the safety, but also the first efficacy is uh, checked and detected. The number of patients in phase two is about two, three hundred compared to 50 to 100 in phase one. So phase two is a very important milestone in the drug development because often after phase two, after the results of phase two are known, the company can sell its compound or its device to a bigger corporation. That's why phase two trials are often named pivotal trials, because then you know that uh, a particular compound is uh, efficacious or not. However, this is not enough to put a compound on the market because you need to have more data. You need to have especially more clinical uh, data in the sense that in phase two, you check the efficacy on some biomarkers, for example, blood pressure in case of an antihypertensive drug. But what you cannot test in phase two is the effect of the drug on the occurrence of coronary heart disease or on the mortality. Because at the end of the day, what is important is not decreasing the blood pressure, but is decreasing the consequences or the impact of uh, high blood pressure on uh, the morbidity and mortality. And that's done in phase three trials. So phase three trials are trials in 500,000, 3,000, 5,000 patients. And from the data gathered in these phase three trials, you get a fairly good view if the drug is safe and efficacious. The experience is and that when good results are obtained in phase two trials, not necessarily these good results are um, repeated and are also seen in phase three trials. So um, positive phase two trials do not necessarily mean that also the phase three trials will be positive as well. At the end of the phase three trials, um, a report is made, a cl clinical study report is made, submitted to the authorities who will then decide to authorize the sales and marketing of this uh, compound in a particular uh, country. And then finally, we have phase four studies. These are sometimes referred to as post-marketing studies. And these are studies, as the name says it, uh, which are happening with compounds which are already on the market. The main reason for such trials is to detect side effects. So you need to have a good pharmacovigilance network uh, for that. And uh, indeed, it is logic that when you do your trials on three, 4,000 patients in total, effects that occurs with a prevalence of one in 10,000. However, an occurrence of one in 10,000 can be clinically significant when the compound or the vaccine is used in millions and millions of people. And that's the reason why, for example, recently, the COVID vaccines in clinical trial were deemed really safe, but still when used in a broad population, still some side effects could uh, reveal and uh, could uh, happen. The reason why clinical trials are done in, uh, in Asia is because, uh, and are in fact for different reasons. 
The first reason is that some diseases are happening in Asia, are occurring in Asia, which are not occurring in Europe or the US. A very good example is, for example, dengue, is nasopharyngeal cancer, is liver cancer. So traditionally, clinical trials in Europe and in the US will not study the effect of a vaccine or a compound on these diseases. So that's a first need to do clinical trials in Asia. A second very important um, reason to do uh, clinical trials in Asia, and there I come to the field of Dr. Huren, is oncology. Indeed, it has been seen 20, 30 years ago by oncologists in the US and in Asia that Asian patients needs different doses of chemotherapeutics than um, Caucasians, one, and also that the side effect profile is different in Asians uh, than in um, uh, Caucasians. Now, this has all also been found for other compounds, for example, in uh, hypertension, ACE inhibitors, or in hypolipemic medications, for example, in uh, statins. So there is another very clear-cut reasons not to consider Asian uh, people similar to Western people when it concerns of uh, uh, certain compounds. But I'm sure that uh, Dr. Huren, as an experienced oncology oncologist, will be able uh, to say more about that. But this is, in fact, uh, the reason why clinical research in Asia, done in Asia, done in Asian patients is so extremely important. Th thank you for that roundup. And I think, Huren, let me turn to you, as uh, Jean-Paul just said, from an, from an oncologist perspective and one who has such vast experience in, in this field, uh, surely the approach or the uh, speed um, must have come in the way sometimes of finding quicker, perhaps more innovative novel treatments. Uh, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you see that that sometimes has come in the way uh, as key limiting factors and perhaps the availability even of clinical trials in Asia being a major factor? Yeah, thanks, thanks Rohit. Um, I think what is quite interesting and quite unique about the oncology space within the entire clinical trials industry, um, I wouldn't say it's a disproportionate um, emphasis, but I would say that there's a very large emphasis on drug development in the space of oncology. Um, I've, I've lived through a phase where as a medical student, when I would be in the wards, and we'll be rounding on our stage four lung cancer patients, you know, it was essentially one line of chemotherapy, and, you know, we are, you know, they are just on palliative care, and they're just ensuring that they are comfortable during the final moments. And over the course of my practice, you know, the field has rapidly evolved where we now, you know, use genomics or biomarkers to segment our patient populations. And then on top of that, with these biomarkers are then able to give very specific, targeted, precise therapies um, for them. And in that process, also really, really improve on their survival outcomes. Now, this has just been in a matter of one to two decades, right? Um, and that goes to really demonstrate the ability for our scientists in basic research to really create new um, technologies, to really expand the boundaries of our knowledge and to get drugs and molecules into the clinical trials process. So what we are working with today is a landscape where at any one point in time, the last I checked in the US-based registry, that's just a US-based clinical trials registry, um, there are more than 17,000 clinical studies that have been registered, out of it probably a figure of about 14,000 interventional trials that are testing drugs that you have to administer in a clinical trial. 
are actually happening across the world, right? Now, there is a asymmetry actually um, that we are dealing with. It's not for a lack of innovative molecules or research opportunities and the patients, you know, um, it's not for lack of that, but it's essentially how do we balance that supply or demand in a very crude way, right? In this case, what we do have is this opportunity of a large landscape of drugs that are in the developmental phase. And you also have many patients who should ideally be getting access to therapies, but we keep saying that they don't have access to drugs. So why is it an issue? And this is where it is almost certainly what I would describe as a fundamental matching problem. Right, And not just a matching problem, it is also an allocation problem in terms of getting these trials or molecules in a timely manner. So one thing that is unique to the cancer patient population with other life-threatening diseases is you don't just live with the diagnosis and you live with it for the next 30 years. In many of our patients who are accessing therapies, they need to get that within the next few weeks or months. And the longer you wait, that patient will not stay to benefit from access to that drug. So now that's the space that we live in and how do we actually balance that opportunity with the patients who need it um, most. And I think that's where um, the use of technologies coming in can actually make an impact um, in the oncology research landscape. Well, that's fascinating because you know, we've seen the roles of life sciences, you know, uh, uh, life science companies, data technology companies, suddenly orbiting around disease management and particularly around this pathway of faster accelerated access to care. Has the pandemic in that regard, do you think, created a more conducive synergy where technology and particular clinical trials, clinical studies, the accelerants can now more seamlessly coexist, wash back and forth? Do you, do you, do you see that happening or perhaps yet some struggles, perhaps an easier transition may be had now. Um, it'll be interesting to get your perspectives, both from Jean-Paul and from Hiran, looking at it from the size that you have. Um, but uh, Hiran, let's, let's maybe just continue on with your train of thought there, because it is an integral question to ask that has this post-pandemic uh, situation helped clinical trials and technologies to now take advantage of some sort of acceleration? So I think the, the pandemic has certainly opened our eyes as a medical community into how we should be more receptive to technologies very broadly, right? Um, however, I think um, what, what we can see um, is almost a kind of differentiation of technologies that were deployed to really solve an immediate pressing and urgent issue. Um, and most of this was centered around continuity of care, right? When, when COVID happened, essentially many patients could not come back to the hospitals. In larger landscapes, patients couldn't travel anymore. How do you continue delivering your service as a healthcare provider? Um, so you saw the, the adoption of telemedicine, you know, in a big way during COVID because you simply had to care for the patients who could not physically come to your clinics. Right? And, and similarly, the adoption of um, telemedicine was also seen in clinical trials, where in several clinical trials you know, in, in our part of the world, where especially when these molecules were, for example, oral therapies, where you literally, um, after the first visit, it, many of these patients were just continuing on these therapies. They needed, they needed a doctor locally to just check on them, but they didn't have to actually travel long distances because some of these patients, for example, were participating in clinical trials and they're actually from outside Singapore and they're coming to Singapore just for a study, right? Um, and this is where um, telemedicine and remote technologies actually facilitated that process and ensured continuity of the clinical research efforts that were being undertaken. Now, so that's almost like a gap filler uh, to ensure that whatever processes that we had at least we do not result in a system where we could not deliver care to our patients to, and it leads to a detriment for them. However, um, as we would now start seeing, I think there is going to be a certain degree of normalization because you know, people are going back to the 
COVID norms. And if there was no strong need or desire, and especially no, no very, not a very clear, um, you know, uh, cost benefit um, perspective to this, then I think many of the people or organizations that have adopted some of these technologies may find it difficult to continue with them. Um, there may also be some differentiating factors. For example, such technologies may not necessarily be required in a small country like Singapore, whereas in larger landscapes, they might actually say, look, actually it is favorable to continue with some degree of, of telemedicine for the management of our trials so that we can avoid the patient having to travel several hours just to come to the trial site and to be assessed for just 10 minutes, for example, right? So I, I think there will be a slight difference there. But I think on a, another level, um, there can be some core enabling technologies um, where, you know, if you're talking about really infrastructure, how do you facilitate information exchange between industries? These are problems that have been there for the longest time. Um, COVID did not necessarily make an impact on them. Um, it may have changed the mindset into saying, look, we as healthcare systems should be more ready and open to trying different technologies. Uh, but I think, you know, um, such infrastructure plays uh, or adoption of technology, you know, they need to find their own natural flow and adoption over time. I don't think COVID has made such a tremendous difference in that space. But specifically within clinical trials, I think what we have started seeing, at least in the larger countries, and certainly Dr. John Paul would be familiar with them as well, would be things like, um, you know, remote technologies or decentralized clinical trials, where certain um, organizations such as CROs or farmers may try to use this technology so that patients can continue and access trials from the community setting. Um, because we know that many trials usually are centered around the large academic trial sites, but where they receive their day-to-day -day care is really in the community. And by using decentralized platforms, there might be a way to get them to participate in these studies. I think we have seen some degree of adoption. Um, I think as an industry, of course, everyone is trying to see look, how do we kind of normalize that and continue the uptake. Um, so such technologies have, of course, have actually seen an uptake and hopefully there's further progress in the field as well. Jean-Paul, what's your read into that? That uh, from the perspective as you outlined, first phase, second phase, uh, particularly the gathering of the people, the physicality of having the clinical trials take place, <clears throat> where do you see um, the technology angle as, as Hiran is pointing out, the, the actual accessibility perhaps? Um, what would be some of your thoughts? Well, um, yes, uh, Rohit, I think the, as has already been said by uh, uh, colleague uh, uh, Hurem, uh, COVID has has a, a profound impact on the way uh, clinical trials were conceived and done, and um, and most of the changes which we were obliged to follow are positive, and some of them will stay. And uh, for example, one of the most profound effects is uh, the way of doing and the acceptance of doing teleconferences. Uh, three years ago, uh, Zoom and team meetings were uh, nearly unheard of. Eh? Um, now, if you want to discuss something with sponsors, with um, staff of a pharmaceutical company, everybody finds it completely normal to do it through a Zoom or a Teams uh, meeting and no need anymore to go to the office of that company. The same thing uh, for contacting the investigators. And uh, these go with um, quite an important uh, time saving because in, uh, in a hospital, but there is also much more. For example, the institutional review boards, the ethical committees, instead of having one meeting, uh, one face-to-face -face meeting every month, 
now documents are circulated uh, uh, through email and Zoom meetings are held um, much more frequently, uh, sometimes once a week, uh, to discuss uh, certain uh, protocols and certain clinical trial application. So this is definitely a very uh, positive uh, thing. Regarding uh, the patients, uh, uh, what we discovered during the COVID uh, epidemic is that we were very dependent on the patients coming to a hospital. And uh, when there is a pandemic, patients don't like to come to a hospital, are afraid, especially elderly patients on one hand. And on the other hand, the hospital administration um, doesn't want um, patient, regular patients to come into the hospital um, because uh, the COVID or the pandemic uh, um, emergency. So quite some uh, clinical trials were stopped. What is the solution in such case is if the patient cannot go to the hospital, then the doctor or um, the CRO is going to the place of the patients. And that's what we see uh, more now is that um, monitoring uh, of the patients uh, sometimes face-to-face uh, -face, uh, is done at the home of the, the patient. And also regarding clinical trials, something which was not thought about it a couple of years ago is now happening more and more. I mean hereby the informed consent process. Before an informed consent process was really a face-to-face -face event. You needed to speak to have to be. Now it is already accepted that um, this is done through uh, Zoom or uh, Teams. Again, a whole evolution, which we also see um, in other sectors, uh, for example, in the banking sectors, where now you can open an account, uh, basically uh, never have been gone uh, to, to the bank. Uh, to continue on that path, uh, we need uh, system devices to monitor the patients at home. And we also uh, need uh, some other elements, for example, nurses who can take blood at home and we also need good and reliable courier services to bring uh, some samples, some biological samples uh, from the home of the patient to a central po point and reversely uh, to bring uh, the sets, uh, the tubes and so uh, to the home of the patient. So there is a whole change of the way uh, clinical trials will be done. And I think um, uh, some of this uh, definitely uh, will, uh, will stay. And which I didn't go into uh, detail, uh, the difference between uh, research and clinical trial. Um, when you speak about illness and treatment, um, you have the clinical practice, you have uh, a clinical trial. The difference between clinical practice and clinical trial is that the aim of clinical practice is to cure the patient. If you go to a doctor um, with an illness, you want that the doctor is curing you or at least elevating your, um, your symptoms disease. When you go to a doctor and you are asked to participate in a clinical trial, the primary aim is not to cure you. The primary aim is to test a drug, a compound, or a medical device. And uh, a classic example is that in a clinical trial, you can have a placebo group. 
So it means that when a patient goes into a clinical trial, it cannot be promised to the patient that the patient will be cured, yeah? because that we don't know. However, uh, it must remain ethical. And for this uh, reason, for example, again, in oncology, it would be uh, completely unacceptable to do a placebo-controlled uh, uh, trial. So that's the difference between clinical practice and clinical research. The difference between clinical research and uh, not to do any harm to the patient. So in any way, you still must make sure that somehow, somewhere, the patient can be treated or will be treated. So in case a placebo is given, that the trial is not taking too long. So for example, in a hypolipemic trial, you can take a placebo for, let us say, uh, two, three months, but not longer because it cannot harm uh, the, the patient. On the, I would nearly say on the contrary, uh, research, bench research doesn't have that connotation of curing the patient and not doing uh, harm uh, to the patient. Research is, bench research is aiming to understand uh, some biological process, getting a better insight in it, with eventually later on the hope that this could have a therapeutic effect. But in first instance, a researcher in the bench is not concerned what I'm doing now will immediately benefit uh, a patient. And that's the, or will not harm a patient. And that's the big difference between bench research and clinical research. Clinical research must be very careful. It must be ethical. You must not harm the patient. And at the end of the day, you uh, must take care that the patient can uh, will get uh, a decent uh, uh, treatment if the clinical trial is um, is is finished. And the, the last thing that's the reason why um, uh, more and more um, uh, patients or ethical committee are sometimes asking that when the trial is finished and the patient benefited of the new compound, they can use uh, this compound in humanitarian use up until the compound is in the market, because that's a problem. Uh, patients are in a trial, uh, have a lot of benefit of um, uh, the new compound. Sometimes the compound is life-saving, but then the trial is finished and then they must stop the drug and, and, and the drug is not yet, maybe the drug will be on the market one year or one year and a half later. This is not really ethical and that's why uh, it is now more and more asked that uh, the drug is um, uh, given to the patient, if the patient asks it, of course, given to the patient in such a situation. So, um... Let's, let's maybe switch gears, but not so far away uh, from what Jean-Paul here and you have just been talking about, and that is the uh, financial toxicity uh, aspect. Now, this is a bit of a, a lengthy question, so just bear with me here. The question of financial toxicity, let's say in cancer, is, has been a massive issue, not just for the patient and their uh, comfort, but their caregivers and you know, economies at large, right? Um, now, there's been a fair amount of criticism that tends to be pointed at the finger of insurers or providers or payers um, in coming in the way of creating obstacles in having faster access to the right treatment, uh, the intrinsic sort of, um, unfortunately, bias sometimes, certain communities have access, certain don't, and this sort of sense that the active participation of all these stakeholders coming together is, is, is a gap. Now, in what you've just reflected on in terms of some of the complexities um, of clinical research, clinical studies, clinical trials, and so on, and how technology is now not just a disruption 
but possibly now you know a a way of solving all this do you see then that there are particular facets of technologies that can help overcome the absenteeism let's 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 use that word for a second that perhaps exists right now so for instance clinical trial registries and the digitization of that um, NGOs and participants within the access pool of patients who otherwise wouldn't get access to those trials being given that, right? Um, are, are there elements, therefore, where technology can be a almost, uh, dare I say, financial enabler uh, for getting the right access, but then also removing some of that concern of how am I going to pay for something like this? Hiran, um, any, any thoughts to that that you may have? Thanks, Ravid. I think um, maybe the way I would, I would answer your question is by taking a few steps back. Um, this access to treatments and the funding for treatments is a inherently extremely complex um, issue. Um, it's complex not because, you know, um, we are lazy about it, but it's complex because Primarily, there are multiple stakeholders involved, right? And, and these stakeholders, um, which is uniquely healthcare, include the patient, the patient's healthcare system, which is not just the hospital, but his primary physician who cares for him and who is the individual who is tasked with recommending what treatments should be appropriate for that patient or what trials would be appropriate for that patient at that point in time. And beyond that, there is the insurers, which is either the government funding agencies, the private insurance, or in many cases like Singapore, both, who come into the picture and who need to make decisions on what can be covered and what should be borne by the patient themselves. And this, you have to then, you know, kind of almost juxtapose it to very different healthcare systems with different funding mechanisms across Asia. Right. What you see in Singapore is different from other parts of Southeast Asia or in East Asia for that matter. Right. Now, so inherently within that, when you have multiple people who all have to come into the picture, I think it always lends itself to a lot of inertia where what you have been doing as a system tends to continue at its particular pace and for changes to be affected it needs to make sure that it addresses the needs and concerns of every stakeholder in a balanced manner. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges in healthcare. Um, and this is, this is not just you know, for funding, but it's in the adoption of technologies across the skills. You think about it, why would we as a healthcare ecosystem adopt a technology, right? It has to be a benefit to almost every key stakeholder that is involved in that interaction. Otherwise, you know, the end user may use it, but he will stop using it if he can't get the funding to use, to use it as well, right? So um, the need to address the stakeholder interests and to align all those stakeholders is one of the fundamentally most challenging issues in healthcare. And that's, I, I guess, the reason why we are even having this conversation, you know, because um, it needs to be openly discussed across multiple stakeholders to get their perspectives. Now, I think one of the issues here is that I don't see technology as creating financial value or funding out of nowhere. It's not going to be that way. But I think technology is going to be able to provide the appropriate insights that govern the decision making, that justify why or why not something should be funded that gives the decision makers that visibility of the benefits and the costs in a much more transparent manner. And I'll give you an example, right? Um, today, a lot of the funding um, for a drug, for many countries that follow the, um, the reference of the US FDA, they then decide that, yeah, okay, this drug is approved um, for use in my landscape, right? Um, Regardless of that, um, for a particular geography where the patient population will be slightly different, they might say, look, that approval 
was done on a very, very different patient population, which we do not believe can be correlated with our patient population. And hence, I will not fund that drug within my landscape. And they might then ask for a clinical trial, right? Where the basis is that clinical trial gathers the data that then helps justify the funding for that. So here again, if you look at clinical trials, why are the trials being done? Because we need data. It's all about the data that justify our decisions. And this is where we stop. The data then stops at the level of conducting a clinical trial. Um, if it's a phase three clinical trial at the level of you know, a few small thousands of patients, and we get to a phase four where you know, they're actively doing these trials, then they have a larger budget. But the true data that we are missing out on is the insights that are being generated from all the patients accessing the various therapies, right? Um, not just from clinical trials, but thereafter. Now, from an ecosystem perspective, I think this is where we need to introspect and look at how technology can allow us to tap into that data in very, very specific and well-defined use cases or requirements, right? To say that, look, if we understand that we need a system where our funding from the government agencies or the insurers is going to rely on a nationally accepted framework where we pull in data um, for such use cases from a particular system, then everyone should be aligned to adopt that framework. And likewise, the hospitals or the patients they know that such a system exists to support their needs in future. I think that's how technology can come into the picture. But this is where eventually it's not just about deploying a software to a solution just so that hospitals can collect data. You need to make sure that the other stakeholders, which are the insurers and the payers, agree to look at that data after its collection to say that, look, based on the data collected and the financial endpoints, I then approve or disprove you know, um, the, the funding of a drug. So you know, I think this is where the complexity comes in. How do you as a national ecosystem be aligned to say, these are the end outcomes that we want for our patient population. And this is how we will adopt the use of the appropriate technologies to facilitate that. I don't have an answer for that. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Um, I think it's a multi-step journey, you know, where it may have to start off with identifying use cases for a start, um, very high value use cases. I mean, I, I'm an oncologist in this space. I look around me and, you know, I always have references of, you know, recent articles and, and cases where, you know, like recently, I think a few weeks back, which you were referring to as well, how certain patients who really had no standard of care options. And because they had precise genomic features, um, a key opinion leader was able to administer a drug, but that drug, because it's not approved for that indication, could not be funded. Um, I think these are the kind of scenarios where potentially they could be um, adopted as use cases within an ecosystem to say, that look, let us all contribute certain data points that we have of such unique patient populations and eventually look at those outcomes um, as a starting point. Um, you can never change an ecosystem you know, at one, at one go. I think it's really about identifying where those opportunities are and then really breaking down those barriers around it. Jean-Paul, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but let me spin it slightly with an addition hearing her and talk that shaking this uh, uh, ecosystem tree, so to speak, is not an easy task because many things get shaken up and things that aren't even in their place, perhaps. But an added point, if I could just ask Jean-Paul, just as you as you gather your thoughts on that is, do you think that part of it is the somewhat inherent competition between the public and the private sector? And, and I'm talking more in terms of the wider global perspective here, that the adoption of such innovations, the sharing of this data, the utility of inclusion of insurers and payers, is there, is there a relook in policy? Does it mean like incentivizing hospitals across the board? Is it something else that marries this technology enablement? But as Hurun was pointing out, these sort of inherent complexities of being able to really fully 
uh, experience, you know, the outcomes of the clinical trial is meant to be. Yeah. Um, Rohit, I, I first would like to take one uh, step back and, and first of all, explain to the uh, listeners of this uh, uh, podcast that not participating in a clinical trial uh, is not a disaster. So maybe uh, some patients, some family members can have uh, the opinion that uh, not uh, be accepted to be in a clinical trial is like uh, a death sentence. No, that's, uh, that's not true. Because um, compounds used in the clinical trials are in oncology, rarely uh, miracle drugs. So it means that uh, compounds are aimed to extend the survival with a couple of months. And so it is rare, once in a while, you get a compound that is uh, putting the patient in complete uh, remission, uh, but that's definitely not always uh, uh, the case. Because one uh, thing that we haven't spoken here and which is very important also in oncology is the quality of life. Because if you take a new drug and you live by way of speaking, three or four months longer. But these three or four months, you are tired, you are vomiting, you lose your hair, etc., etc. Do you really want such a life prolongation? Or would you prefer um, not having this and die earlier with all these uh, complications? So quality of life, is, is, is a very important phenomenon uh, that is also more amorphous. Now, um, also um, going further on what uh, colleague Huren said, uh, personalized medicine, although let us say this is uh, something which has been spoken about for the last 20 years, is now finally coming up and is extremely important, especially in uh, oncology. And for this, uh, we need uh, technology. Eh? We need, for example, in breast cancer, we need uh, to know who are, as an example, Herceptin positive patients, because we know that there are specific uh, drugs which uh, will have a good uh, result, antibodies, um, which will have a good result in this uh, category of, um, of patients. Now, so personalized medicine is uh, key and for personalized medicine, you need a lot of technology. Coming back to your question, uh, uh, Rohit, I think centrally, um, what is key is money, as well for the public system as for the private uh, system. Because indeed, new drugs, clinical trial drugs are, are very uh, expensive. And in the public system, the money needs to come from the government side, the private uh, uh, system, the money comes uh, from uh, the, the, the patient. So uh, what has been seen in, in other countries and also, uh, for example, in Europe in such cases are, uh, is uh, philanthropy. Uh, so um, in case, uh, and that's, um, um, often seen in um, inborn defects where children are born with a particular defect and then need uh, a very expensive drug which can cost uh, one or two million Singapore dollar uh, a year. Then uh, some uh, help is asked from foundations, uh, from philanthropies, to then provide the money uh, for the treatment up until potentially 
the uh, uh, official uh, instances, Ministry of Health and so on, are then uh, providing a much needed uh, subsidy. However, it is, um, we also understand the, the position of uh, a Ministry of Health is a huge amount of money, uh, which can be applied to many other things, to improving GP care, to improve uh, technology in hospitals. And if this is um, then uh, allocated to one patient, then of course, in all fairness, it must be allocated also to other patients with um, the same disease without really knowing, because these, these are new treatments, if the treatment is fully effective, will be uh, without side effects uh, and so on. So this is still a difficult uh, uh, public uh, uh, debate, surely. Indeed, indeed. Um, well, I guess a topic that we may not have much time to go deep into, but one that I think I'd love to hear your respective opinions is that on the fact of, well, let's, 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 let's call it health equity. So health equity, you know, three, five, 10 years ago would always sort of land around health literacy. How health literate were we making uh, chronic uh, sufferers, particularly of an aging demographic who weren't so well versed with what their disease was all about, it was also there to help save time in the clinic and in the diagnosis, uh, health literacy in terms of compliance, adherence, and so on. But now it seems equally, if not more, it's really about digital literacy. And if one doesn't have the right or requisite or prerequisite digital literacy, then how on earth will one manage this complexity of one's own health? And even from a healthcare professional's perspective, being able to manage the technology advances in how uh, patient care is actually being done. Do you see these, therefore, as critical partnerships in work going forward, this hybrid combination of a health literate HCP, a health literate, uh, sorry, I mean, a, a digital literate HCP and a digital literate uh, patient being able to actually have better outcomes than, than simply a lot of health literacy uh, education? Hiran, any thoughts to that first? And John Paul, I'd love to hear your view as well. So I, I don't think that's a, that's a straightforward answer to that. It's, but, you know, without going um, too deep into exploring why the situation is as such and what are the various options, what I would just want to say is, um, I think this is specifically where newer companies, startups, in this space are really well placed to explore how they can build appropriate solutions with the right customers or end users in mind, right? Um, and this has to be really contextualized because every market that you're looking at, there's a different literacy rate, there's a different health literacy rate, and there's a different digital literacy rate to it. Um, how you deliver the awareness to them is going to be tweaked. It's going to be contextualized to the specific market that you're working with. It's going to be very, very hard for healthcare providers, um, government-based organizations to, to, to work that because it requires the ability to go out into the market, understand your consumers, build a product, iterate it to make sure that whatever you're building today, even if it doesn't work well enough, you've gotten enough feedback to then make it better to the point where you now have a solution that helps drive that awareness um, for both patients and even the healthcare professionals at another level. But I think this is really, really where the startup philosophy of being able to understand your customers and then to modify and learn from that process and to eventually then build something that works really fits in, in terms of addressing um, the gaps that we have with uh, digital and health literacy. Um, I think there's still an important role of this, don't take me wrongly, that, that, uh, that the healthcare providers and hospitals still have to play. Um, how the doctor communicates with his patients and you know, improves his own awareness of his condition is at one level. 
but there are certainly tools and technologies that can also support patients in their efforts to understand basically what they're going through and what their options are. And this is, I think, a very nice space where in our modern context, um, startups are well-placed to actually address. Jean-Paul, would we have some consensus on that uh, from your side? Do you have a, a point of view? Like yeah, well, uh, Rohit, I, uh, I 200% agree with uh, Huren on that point. And I would like to add something that uh, maybe, uh, or definitely, we should use these resources for prevention, eh? uh, because that's uttermost important. We see that uh, certain layers of the populations uh, are disadvantaged, have lesser uh, financial means, and these are also the layers of the populations who have more of certain diseases. And um, we know that certain cancers are linked to unhealthy lifestyle and behavior. So uh, I think we also should use these new tools in educating uh, everybody about uh, this uh, unhealthy and so on. Also educate um, uh, this uh, person in getting a better medical follow-up because we also see that in the uh, higher social classes, there is a better medical care, a better medical uh, uh, follow-up. And uh, this is so important in making sure uh, that at the end, um, patients are not becoming ill. And it's um, for uh, a country, it's much more cheaper uh, to have an efficient um, prevention than uh, to start uh, tackling uh, the persons, the patients, once the disease has uh, come in. So prevention is so important and I would like that the new technologies as um, described by Huren would also not only be applied to patients and make sure they follow their treatment better, et cetera, et cetera, but also for prevention. I, I think that's a lovely way uh, as our hour comes up to have a lot of food for thought uh, as not just an introduction to the value and the integration of technologies and uh, clinical trials and studies, but the overall perspective of how healthcare and life sciences is now evolving at this immense speed. Um, I, I'd love it if there's a way, Jean-Paul and Huren, in the few minutes we have left, if you could give our listeners your one sort of, I'd like to say one sentence takeaway, that might be difficult, but sort of like your prediction of where things are headed or where you wish they'd be headed as a way that we can have a nice leave behind. Um, Hiran, what, what would be your takeaway for our listeners? Um, thanks, Rohit. I think, I think my one takeaway is um, healthcare is inherently challenging. It's inherently complex, but it is our basic fundamental human right to live, to be able to live a good and healthy life. Um, it is so core to our being that, you know, the efforts that we undertake to shape our, um, our environment, to, sh to shape our stakeholders, and to really explore and push the frontiers of how technology can support our health, it, it's going to be immensely important. Um, that you know, going through the growing pains of technology and adoption is something that we'll be, we will have to live with. But we can kind of see where this will end up with, with the eventual benefits um, for all of us. Um, I think what I just want to add is it requires a lot of patience um, for stakeholders to navigate themselves, and it requires a bit of open-mindedness as well, you know, to be able to say that, look, this is what I am used to, this is what I might have known, but for the betterment of society, this is what I'm also willing to push the boundaries um, for as well. And I think that will put us in a good position to really improve the quality of life that we live with um, over the next decades. Thank you, Yorin. Jean-Paul? Yes, uh, Rohit, uh, as um, my parting words would be, look, uh, as a human being, 
we are the result of interaction of genes and environment. Genes we cannot change. We cannot change uh, our parents, eh? but we can change the environment and the effect on environment. And this is extremely important in preventing diseases later on. And it already starts in fertile life. There are more and more arguments um, presented that what the mother eats uh, during pregnancy, how she behaves and how she lives uh, during uh, pregnancy will determine in fact illnesses in the unborn child when the child will be 40 or 50 years old. So this is extremely important to um, take care of the environment, take care of uh, a healthy lifestyle. It's also important to regularly uh, visit doctors regularly, uh, regularly go for very elemental tests because we know that it takes years and years to develop a certain disease. Does everybody knows that the time between being a normal individual and getting full-blown diabetes, that this time is 10 years? And during that pre-diabetic period, you can really intervene and come back to a normal stage. So use it. The same thing for hypertension, the same thing for cancer. A cancer, of course, there are always exceptions, but a cancer takes years and years to grow. And there are different cancers who have early signs of appearance. Please use the detection method to uh, know if you have can, uh, cancer. Don't be afraid of it because when a cancer is detected at an early stage, a lot more can be done than when it is detected at a late stage. So as human beings, all two genes are playing an important role, still we can regulate, we can in fact influence our health in a big way. And that's what we should do. Great words, great words from both Jean-Paul and from Huron. With that, we come to the close of our uh, episode. I call it a very special episode because I think this in itself lays the foundation for so much more to come. Uh, I'd really like to thank uh, both Jean-Paul and Huron for taking the time out of their extremely busy schedule and of course time zones uh, to spend the time and impart this most necessary information to our listeners. And as we roll up the various episodes into our outcomes, the white papers, the consensus documents, we hope that we can cascade and bring more realization to the necessity of understanding that will bring us together in managing healthcare better. You can follow us um, at the RSS feed that's there in the uh, link below. You can also uh, see more about us at www.thevoicesprojectasia.org. Uh, and at any point in time, we love hearing back from you. So keep those feedback and those uh, inputs coming in. We love to hear what you think and how uh, in particular we can just, yeah, just, just make sure we get the right voices to amplify where we are. With that, thank you so much for your time and listening. And, speak to you soon. Thank you.